Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Luxe mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. Everyone, welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, editorial director, here with Mara Levinsky, senior editor. Hi, everyone. Mara, some big news at The Young and the Restless. Susan Walters is back as Diane Jenkins and is revealed to be the woman who bought the late chemo's house. Now, as you know, Diane was last played by Maura West, now General Hospital's Ava, and was bashed in the head in self defense by Nikki which led to Diane's presumed death in 2011. So clearly reports of her death were greatly exaggerated. Um, But Susan tells us in the new issue that she wasn't that concerned about the fact that Diane was killed since her version of Diane was alive when she left in 2010. So she was happy to just pick right back up and reboot the story. Susan says her return was so hush-hush that they had a fake name in the script and the studio monitors were turned off when she filmed. And even when she showed up in the makeup room, some of her co-stars had no idea why she was there. You know, I feel like there are certain returns from the dead where it doesn't really matter how implausible they are. We're just happy to have the character back in the mix. And to me, this really falls into that category. I think there is like a lot of storyline life left in Diane. And I actually can't wait to see how Nikki reacts to seeing her living and breathing. Uh, Diane has such juicy history with the Abbots and the Newmans, and I can't wait to see how she stirs the pot this time. And I know it will come as a huge cause for celebration for a lot of YNR fans that Michael Mueller will be back as Kyle, Diane's son with Jack, to take part in that storyline. Oh, well, it will definitely affect the amount of emails we get from Skyle fans in our sound off inbox, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, now, another story we're covering in the new issue is the injury that soap vet Vincent Irizarry recently suffered. So apparently in December, Vincent played Good Samaritan and stepped into an altercation between a husband and a wife outside of a restaurant and wound up with some serious injuries and a concussion for his efforts. So this led to fluid on his brain, which had increased substantially over the past few months, and he had to have emergency surgery to relieve it. Fortunately, Vincent made it through okay and was released from the hospital, but my God, what a scary thing to happen. And of course, we're sending him our best wishes for a full and speedy recovery. Absolutely. That whole story is is so crazy, and I'm just so happy that it is uh, speeding toward a happy ending for Vincent. 
Well, on a much lighter note, uh, this issue also has one of my all-time favorite SOD features, CoStar Confidential, where we ask a panel of actors to answer questions about their castmates like, who's the least likely to flub a line? Who's the most chipper in the morning? Who's the biggest goofball? Not only do I get such a kick out of reading the ones from B&B Days and uh, Y&R, but I always have so much fun doing the interviews with the people uh, that are on the panel from GH. Ever since I started watching soaps and started reading the magazine, I've always loved hearing about the actors' dynamics with one another, and that hasn't changed even as I've gotten to know them personally. So I, I think it's a really fun read. Oh, I do too. Uh, to your point, seeing what actors have to say about their co-stars will never get old to me. And this one is also one of my favorite features, so everyone should check it out. Now, this was a big week for Bold and Beautiful. The show marked its 35th anniversary on March 23rd, and Jack Wagner came back to reprise the role of Nick Moroni for the special Brooke-centric episode. Now, he is our guest today, and as I was looking over his list of credits and such, I realized that with the exception of A New Day in Eden, I've probably seen everything he has ever been in. Um, I'm a fan of Hallmark's When Calls the Heart, in which he's currently starring. I watch his Wedding March movies on Hallmark, and not for nothing, I have the full All I Need album downloaded in my iTunes library. So for me, it's always fun when we get to chat with someone whose body of work aligns with my viewing and listening likes. So let's get him on the line and catch up. Hi, Jack. Hi. How are you guys today? Good. How are you? I am so good and so excited to check in with you guys and uh, chat a bit here, right? Yeah. So we could not be more excited to have you as a guest today. Um, now, we usually start with our guest's childhood, but you have so many projects that we're eager to discuss that we need to jump ahead to your entry into showbiz. <laughs> so very long story short, if I have this right, you were born in Missouri, excelled as a golfer, but landed a drama scholarship at the University of Arizona and came to Los Angeles to pursue an entertainment career after graduation. So how long was it before you landed your first acting gig? Yeah, that's pretty close. I was actually in, in Missouri. I was a, you know, a football and basketball guy and just kind of my dad played at a nine hole course and I picked up the game of golf. And so, you know, I, I went to junior high there and uh, they put a golf team together and I was never on a team. My high school was so small. It didn't have a golf team or a track team or anything. So, you know, I played in this junior Missouri state championship and won it with four other guys, the golf team has to have five. And, you know, from that, I kind of was hooked up with the old ex-golf coach at the University of Arizona. And I drove down there and tried out for the golf team with 60 guys and finished second. And they put me on the team, but I got no scholarship. So I went over to the drama department because I'd been doing drama in high school and junior college and uh, they said, well, put an audition together. And so I put a song dance and a monologue together and got a full ride tuition in drama. And so that kind of is when I decided I'm going to try to be an actor and not a pro golfer. So that's just to give a little backstory. And then I came to L.A. and was immediately I got a job as a tour guide at Universal Studios. Maybe. And um, because of the head of the drama department, there was an actor named Alan Fudge who graduated from University of Arizona. He said, well, go meet with him and maybe he can help you get an age. And I did. Met him in his you know, his house and sat and talked and he made it put an interview together for an agent. I met with the agent. He sent me on an audition and I got my first audition for the first cable soap called A New Day in Eden, which was, um, it was on a cable show, the only cable network called On TV. And it shot in the studio next to General Hospital. 
And then I, you know, was a waiter in different things. And then um, from that, I got a different agent. And she put me up about eight months later for the role of Frisco Jones. And so I did about five, five, my fifth screen test, they called and said, do you by chance sing or play the guitar? <laughs> and I said, actually, I do. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not here for a recording career, but I, and so I brought my guitar in, did a Kenny Loggins tune, did the audition and got the part. And that's how I got Frisco Jones. I was very ambitious. I was truly living the life of an actor in drama school, working with Sella Adler's company, you know, doing theater here and there. And, um, you know, chopping around, paying my bills and landing Frisco really is what uh, started my career. Mm -hmm. So what stands out to you when you think about like the first chapter of the life of Frisco, where he was the lead singer of Blackie and the Riff Raff opposite John Stamos's Blackie? You know, I'm a thespian, you know, classically trained and this whole deal and to go on a soap, I was like, I don't want to be on a soap. I mean, I was going to go to New York and go to Broadway and you know what I mean? And do that. And so approaching this was, I had no idea what General Hospital really was and how big it was and how big Johnny Stamos was and how big the show was and Rick Springfield and Luke and Laura. So I entered this, you know, a, a little naive just as a thespian actor going in and I'm going to rock this part and I'm going to do this. And so here I am. I'm the lead singer. I've got to go into a recording studio, guys. Okay, I've never been in a recording studio. I play guitar. I sing uh, Elton John, Neil Young, James Taylor. I've done musical theaters. And here I am with headsets on singing, uh, sneak attack, doesn't matter where I'm at, you know. And so the head of music had just left Mercury Records and took the job as ABC daytime music coordinator. And she was in the recording studio. Her name was Kelly Ross. And after I recorded these songs, she goes, are you interested in recording career? And I go, well, yeah, I guess. And I had dinner with Quincy Jones two nights later and signed with Quincy Jones. And the first, uh, he assigned two producers, Cliff Magnus and Glenn Ballard, to me to write songs and produce an album. And the first thing they wrote was All I Need. And, uh, you know, that snowballed into a number one record. And here I am, you know, on, singing songs on and with Blackie and the Riff Raff. We did a recording video, like this big breaking ground to do a, a music video of Make Me Believe It. And, uh, you know, I was just sort of writing the coattails of how huge General Hospital was. And I think came on with a big bang with this character, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so that's yeah. what it was like for me. I was super into it, very ambitious and approaching it really uh, very seriously, you know, in terms of like taking the bull by the horns with this recording career. And, you know, it was good to, to work with Johnny and uh, Stamos and the rest of the cast. And yeah, that's how it all began. I do have to say, All I Need was one of the albums that I purchased and downloaded when I got my, you know, iPhone with my music library. So your your music still pops up. I know every word. Okay. So um, you did work with John Stamos, but we need to know who is more adept at making fun of Ken Schreiner, you or John Stamos? Well, you know, Ken kind of wasn't on the show that much until the late 80s, so I knew him briefly. So I didn't really enjoy making fun of Ken until a little later, okay? <laughs> so that's when I kind of looped into that. He and I are really great friends. I know uh, Johnny and Ken are good friends, you know, but Ken's kind of the guy where I, I, I won't see him or talk to him for a year or two, and then it's like you haven't, you know, it's like you haven't missed a day, you know? So, you know, he's really an adorable, loving guy, and uh 
Yeah, we had, we had a great time when we were on the show. I think I, I, when I came back in 89, 90, right in there, he was on the show. So mm-hmm. I'm sure he gave you a lot of material to make up for the lost time where you hadn't known to mock him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so during this period of time where you become just like a massive star in the GH universe, uh, you know, at a time when soap operas were still pulling in a humongous audience, and then there's the whole other fan base from the music career, you know, how did you handle that experience of becoming a celebrity? Like, did you feel that loss of anonymity? Was there a downside of it for you personally? Not at all. I, I just, uh, thinking back, I embraced it. Like, I was so ambitious, right, guys? I, I put a band together. You know, I got a manager. I started booking concert dates, you know, and I was touring Saturday and Sunday uh, leaving late Friday night after General Hospital and flying back Sunday night and on the set Monday, you know, and playing to, it's interesting because I saw uh, John Mayer at the LA Forum last week and there was a few women screaming behind me. And overall, though, it was such a musical show. It was, I really am a John Mayer fan, right? And I just realized uh, it would take it, my concerts. Um, I couldn't hear myself or the band for the first maybe 45 minutes until I did the first ballad or something, right? Because it was just screaming, hysterical, screaming teenage girls, you know? And I think of how many men were in the John Mayer concert, right? Like myself and other, and the only men in my concert were dads that were bringing their girls, their daughters. And I was sitting there going, God, what it was like to try to hear the drums and the bass and, you know, cause it was hysterical, right? All through the eighties. Uh, mm-hmm. So anyway, that's just to revisit a little bit of what it was like for me. Um, but I was super aggressive and ambitious with my career. Right. I, I, I really loved it. I embraced it. Well, in the moment, were you able to sort of step back and say, oh, my God, all this is really happening for me? Like, did you have any self-awareness of what was happening to your life or were you just sort of like moving along through it? Yeah, I was self-aware in that, you know, my family, you know, what I mean, my family to see me on TV, you know, that, that's a big deal for any actor. If you really go to L.A. and pursue that career. Um, and. It was, I I think it was so, like, the fan mail back then, now you have Instagram and social media, but there were bags and bags and bags of fan mail that John would get and that I would get, and then you started a fan club, and my brother ran my fan club, so I I don't know if I could put it all in perspective, because it was all normalized, right? Right. This is kind of what the life was for actors on General Hospital because it was a, just the biggest show on TV, right? It just was, mm-hmm. and for, for daytime anyway, for sure, right? So I think I normalized it pretty quickly. And I remember I was also doing uh, plays, you know, in the evening. I was doing little theater pieces here or there when I was on the show. And then when I left in 87, I did a national tour of West Side Story, right? In 88, I did a national tour. Oh, you did? You saw it? <laughs> On the East Coast? Sure did. I'm going to tell you, I think it was at, like, not Jones Beach, but it was somewhere like a theater in the round, maybe. Yeah. It's all coming back to me now. Yeah, yeah. It was in I saw it. Quite, <laughs> quite a few theaters in the round. It was summer, and it was so yeah. interesting to work with all these Broadway dancers and actors. And when we would do, like, when I came on stage, there'd be this screaming 
right? And they were all like, and then when they carried Tony out at the end, right, when he, in, the, in the round, fans would be reaching up and, and grabbing me and touching me. So it, it was a very <laughs> different experience for these, you know, Broadway actors and dancers to adjust to my audience, right? Mm-hmm. But still, what I, my point is, is I always kept my foot in the theater, you know, because it's really what, for me, I love live. Anything live is very, very, it feeds me, right? That's really what makes, makes it t- me turn on and what I, what I crave. So, and then I went, I did two years of stage and then went back to General Hospital. So that kind of is the 80s for me, right? Mm-hmm. Concerts, General Hospital, theater, and then back to GH in 89. Well, Frisco was a high-impact character from the get-go, but I think that uh, the pairing of Frisco and Felicia kind of took it to a whole new level, and it's always a mysterious thing why, you know, certain couples become super couples. But what is your take on why the audience uh, cottoned to Frisco and Felicia as passionately as they did? Well, when I see fans on uh, Twitter, these fan bases retweet scenes with Christine and myself, I got to tell you, um, she was just so pure, right? I mean, she was, and I think our characters together, along with us personally, I mean, it was this chemistry of, I watched the scenes and I go, good God, were we cute? I mean, we were cute (laughs) and lovable and we were sexy, you know, and like everything was very real right? You could, I really believed, and she could cry on a dime. And we did so many well, costumes and characters and dress up and, and, you know, dangerous storylines in the Asian quarter and Frisco was with the WSB. And, you know, it really was a combination of, you know, this couple that had obstacle after obstacle, yet they would reunite in this loving way. And it just felt so real to me. And Christine is just so adorable and cute and beautiful. And I think the way we looked, how we looked as a couple, as well as our chemistry, you know, just seemed to really hit this, you know, and, and, and I think fans had this compartmentalized romantic place we all have in our minds. You know, we have this spot that's just our own, you know, and it's just our own where we have this you know, kind of compartmentalized little romantic world. And I think these characters touched that for a lot of fans. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And on that same note, their wedding was certainly one of the pinnacles of the relationship. Um, What do you remember about shooting that wedding and Frisco in his dress uniform and Felicia in her 25 yards of lace? Well, I think it was rather epic, yes. But what I remember is having to sing Lady of My Heart a (laughs) cappella. Okay, you know how hard it is to sing live on television? <laughs> Lady of my heart, tell me who you are. And like the perfect pitch. So I remember having to, and she's just crying and I'm singing and I'm like going, wow, that's good TV. <laughs> yeah. So it was really just such a beautiful, touching, you know, I think a pinnacle for these characters that fans had hoped for that they would unite like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And her with the tiara on and me in dress uniform. Right. It's all happening. Yeah. It was happening. It was happening. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the action adventure component, I think, was also part of their appeal. And that required sometimes going on location. Do you have a favorite shooting on location on GH story? Uh, gosh, there were quite a few. But the first one was so cool. You know, I saw a, a screen test of Christina's in New York, 
and they were trying to cast Felicia, who was supposed to be an Aztec princess. And I'm in the casting room in ABC because they wanted me to check out. Some, and there's this brunette and that brunette. All of a sudden, there's this, just this, so, like, Christina had this quality of, like, just so raw and real, right? And just, like, naive, you know, like, like just there. And I'm, like, going, oh, my God, who is that? And she was just adorable. And Gloria Monty, who, and I, and I, I had mentioned it, Gloria, wow, she is my favorite for sure. And when they cast Christina, you know, our first uh, location shoot was in San Antonio with uh, uh, Luke, and, you know, and Laura and Tristan Rogers, uh, Scorpio uh, and all of that, you know, so that would be my favorite because, you know, we just got to know each other. We're all just, you know, new on the show, Christina and I, so you know, that storyline and Gloria directing and all of that was the first taste of what it was like to work on that show, you know, and, and the impact it would have. Well, you did mention that you left the show prior to this, but in 1991, you exited to join another daytime show, Santa Barbara. So looking back, what prompted that decision and were you happy you made the move? Yes, I was happy. You know, it was a, it was a time where Christine and I had actually, we're going to have our first child we weren't married, um, you know, just a very tough time. Uh, and Jackie Smith, who was at ABC, went to NBC and approached me. And Christine and I were actually splitting up, you know, personally. So it was a really hard time. So I left General Hospital. This was a big deal at the time and went over to NBC. And they paid me a ton of dough. And so it was a way to, like, move over and separate from – that personal life that was also a professional life. And it was really hard and very difficult. And I don't think anybody really knows this part, but maybe that happened for a reason because it was because we were separated and I went over to that show that we wound up actually getting married in real life. You know, I just didn't, I, I didn't, didn't sit right with me. I missed her. Our son was born. You know, it's really hard to work on any capacity with your partner, your husband or wife you know, have a child, go to work, go home. You know, it feels like you have to have some healthy separation, which we didn't have. So maybe me going to that show and having that separation, then, you know, we got married, you know, and we started a family and, and we got a house together and became a husband and wife. But going over to Santa Barbara was, uh, I loved that show. It was great. It was NBC, you know, it was a new network. And, um, yeah, so that's what it was. I think it was a, a bridge to our personal life kind of connecting, breaking up and connecting. Well, on Santa Barbara, you took over the role of journalist Warren Lockridge, and they actually brought you to Moscow, whereas Warren, you interviewed citizens who had taken part in the failed coup against Gorbachev. Like, that's a soap opera first. That's a one and done. Uh, what stands out to you about that incredibly unique experience? Wow, you guys really have done your work. I, you're bringing all this back to me. That that was pretty groundbreaking to go yeah. over to Moscow with the camera crew. And uh, yeah, I remember how destitute everyone was. They were lined up for blocks to get like maybe a chicken, you know, in a butcher shop. And McDonald's was just opening over there. Um, I couldn't believe how everything was sort of dank right? And a little feeling of grayish. You know, there was no, there was no westernized color or anything. Um, and wow, I, I, they threw this huge party for us and dinner because it was a huge show, Santa Barbara and Moscow, who could figure, right? 
And so I went to where they had knocked down these statues of, you know, of their leaders and different things. So, God, I, I just, you guys are bringing it back to me, right? I was celebrated and so was the show over there and I was just kind of joining it. But I go over a sort of, and Ernest, Ernest Hemingway characters, who they based this character off of, right? Warren Lockridge. So I grew the beard and cut the hair. And so I felt like I was, you know, a cutting edge journalist, you know, doing things. But yeah, you bring back memories for me. That was very groundbreaking for an actor and a camera crew to go to Moscow uh, when they were tearing down the walls. Yeah. yeah. Um, as she said, never been done again. Um, well, you made a short-term return to GH in 94 <laughs> and 95 and took part in one of the most highly regarded stories in the show's history, which was Maxi getting DJ's heart. So what stands out to you about shooting that storyline? Probably the performances. You know, I was on Melrose Place at the time. So I had to uh, okay with Aaron Spelling and, and Fox to go over and do some shows at ABC because I wasn't a regular, but I was coming back for a story arc. But I just remember the performances, Christina, uh, Jackie uh, Zeman, and Brad Maul, and Ken even, just everybody around the storyline uh, made it so special because of their performances. You know, everybody dug very deep and tapped into some real emotion. And I think that's why it was such an, an epic, you know, time for the show. Uh, because it drew everybody in. It was so raw. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty incredible. All right. So as you mentioned, in 1994, you took on another career-defining character when you uh, were cast on Melrose Place as Peter Burns. So how did that, uh, that job, that transition to primetime come about? <laughs> I'll tell you exactly why. I was, in, <laughs> I was in Montreal doing a guest spot on the television series called Sirens. And my agent called and said, listen, I'm going to send you a script. And I was off Santa Barbara, and I'm like, done with soaps. He says, listen, I'm sending you a script from Melrose Place. They want to see you. And I'm like, Melrose Place? I'm like, eh, I'm not doing any kind of nighttime soap, soap, nothing soap anymore. And he goes, all right, well, listen, you're going to be working, you know, opposite Heather Lockler, who's just joined that show, and it's really hot and cutting edge right now. And I went, okay, send me the script. So... <laughs> So I spend my time flying back, memorizing my part, changing my lines, rewriting everything. I go into Aaron Spelling's office. It's lined up. His office was like this big shag white carpeting, and it had basically like um, benches along the wall. And, you know, he brought, they're bringing actors in, and you're like auditioning for 10 or 15 executives or whatever. They're lined up there. And I'm doing this improv with the casting director. She can't follow me. I'm just doing a whole thing. I sit next to her. I grab her hand. I do this whole sexy thing. And, you know, I kind of thank them and leave. And anyway, I get the part, you know, and here I am. I'm going to start on Melrose Place. And I'm like, all right, I guess I, I want to make an impact, right? So the first scene I shoot is this scene that I had rewritten. So I go on set and Darren Starr was the executive producer, then went on to do Sex and City and et cetera. And I start doing my thing and what I'd rewritten on this set. And they're like, uh, yeah, cut. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe you should call Darren because you're like not saying anything on the scripts. So call Darren, Darren Starr. And Darren, what's up? And he goes, well, I don't know what, what they said that you're not what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm just doing the scene I did in the audition. You know, I kind of rewrote it and kind of made it my own. And he goes, no, we, we do what's on the page here. Okay. <laughs> just say what's written. Okay. And I'm like going, 
oh my, oh dear. So I, had to, I had to rein in my whole Peter Burns and my improving and all of that. You know, I learned a very early, very early lesson that, oh, I guess we got to kind of do what's written here. So it was, uh, it was a lesson. It was a learning curve for me, but you know, it was a huge show for me. Uh, I really came on and wanted to make an impact, you know, and I think I created this sort of, you know, um, you know, sexy, yet also noble, yet devious character, which is for an actor is like, oh, my God, sign me up. You know, like like on One Calls a Heart, if I can have a horse, guy, and a gun, you know, woohoo. <laughs> for, Melrose, for Melrose Place, it's more like I get to be kind of a sexy, kind of noble good guy, but who's also very devious, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's really a great thing for an actor that you can play those layers. Sure. Well, Peter was a doctor and a bit of a rogue. He was quite popular with the ladies. He had romances with Heather Locklear's Amanda, Lisa Renna's Taylor, Jamie Lunar's Lexi, Rena Sofer's Eve. And in the series finale, he got his happy ending with Amanda. So as you look back on the 139 episodes you did over the course of five seasons, you know, could you ever have imagined that this character would become what it did and that you would last with that show as you had? Oh, that's nice of you. It's, did I mean, yeah, all of those ladies, right? But it was always cycling back to Amanda. You know, that was the key. And that's what I think. It was such an honor to end that series that they gave to, to Heather and myself, you know, like to fake our deaths and then to get married on an island that Peter bought for them to have as their own bubble, you know, and to get married on that island in the last scene of Melrose Place where was Heather and myself walking off, you know, on the beach into the sunset, you know, it was like, wow, that's so cool to end this big show, this epic show in that way and to be that actor they've chosen, you know, and so, you know, and then Heather and I wound up, you know, dating later on in life, you know, eight years later or so. Um, and we were such great friends and had so much fun on set you know, because she's so funny and we were just always, always finding the funniness outside of the set work, making the crew laugh and each other laugh. So that, that for me is a huge part of uh, working on a series to maintain your sense of humor and that actors can really have fun while you work and the crew locks into some laughter and some, you know, <laughs> some jokes. So that was always a part of, that's always a part of how I work. And to think you didn't want to do it. <laughs> I think I didn't want to do it. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. No, that was it. Was it was such a cool show because at the time, you know, girls, it was it was a cutting edge show. You know, oh, now yeah. it's not, not that at all. When you have Netflix and all the different shows on that, you know, really are so raw and real. But Melrose Place was racy back then. Yeah, it was great. Uh, yeah, and major water cooler fodder. You know, like it was everybody it was watched everyone. it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was Melrose Monday, and I loved it because I could usually go somewhere with. I was married with Christina then, and we could go with some friends, and uh, I could watch Monday Night Football on one TV, and the other TV <laughs> had Melrose Place. So it was Monday Night Football and Melrose Monday, right? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. We didn't know how good we had it as viewers that those Mondays. Okay, so skipping ahead some years, in 2003, you began a nearly decade-long run on The Bold and the Beautiful as Nick. 
half-brother of Ridge, son of Massimo and Jackie, uh, another guy who had many, many romances with some uh, beautiful ladies, not, in, uh, not entirely inclusive of, but including Brooke and Taylor and Bridget and Katie. And you returned to the show this past week to help celebrate its 35th anniversary. But going back to the beginning of your B&B arc, how did B&B convince you to come aboard? I was approached by Brad Bell, right? Who's a member at Beller Country Club. And I've been a member there since 86, 30, 30, you know, six years now, right? Golf is a big part of my life. And he's like, hey, it's Brad Bell. I, I do Bold and Beautiful. And I went over to Brad's house in Bel Air, right? Brad's in the big house. I sit down and he goes like, hey, you want to be on the show? Like this, is, like, this is how a lot of things have happened in my career once you establish relationship. And you guys know this yourselves, having this, this um, podcast, et cetera. It's about relationships in business and in life, right? Not many things come from this and that. It's, it comes from the relationships we have, right? So Brad's like, hey, you want to be on the show? And I go, I don't know. What, what, what do you, what, what do you think? And he goes, well, I was thinking of you'd come on as a forester and maybe this and that. And I'm like, yeah, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, I kind of, it was Ken Schreiner. That's who it was who said, no, no, buddy, you, you, you got to create a nautical guy. He's got a beard. He's got a this and he's rubbing his hands like Ken does when he plays Scotty and Ken Schreiner was, was part of, you know, developing Nick Maroney. And I said, Brad, what do you think this guy is nautical? He lives on a boat. He's got a beard. It's a shipwreck thing. He comes on, you know, he's a smoker. And so we created Nick Maroney and, you know, just even working with Kelly coming back, Catherine Kelly Lang, we were reminiscing of all of the scenes we had. And Ashley Jones was at the, the cast photo and just all the things we did on that boat and how different it was to have a nautical, you know, this kind of not grungy, but just the feel of a boat, you know, in the marina and shooting, you know, location shots on the marina when Nick and Brooke got married in that epic white wedding of him and his mm -hmm. dress whites. And she was in her white and the carriage and the white horses. So yeah, it was really something different that I think the show got a shot in the arm to have this guy that lived on this boat, this sort of cool, rustic character who was bearded and goateed and smoked these little cigars and, you know, drank whiskey and was, uh, a, you know, a step away from the Forester's slick, you know, fashion life. And so that's what I wanted to do. Like even Peter Burns on Merrill's Place was, how do I make an impact on this show? Warren Lockridge on Santa Barbara, right? How do I make an impact? And coming back to GH in 89, it was bearded and long haired and like hidden and dark. And so, you know, uh, that was my goal every time I come on a show is, you know, how can I make an impact where it gives a shot in the arm, but it's justified because this is who the character is. You build a character right? That is real. And, you know, that's what I did here with Brad and Bold and the Beautiful. Well, I think it's interesting to hear that you do care so much about who you're going to play and that you do have so much input or maybe suggestions about what kind of character you're going to create. You know, it was a collaboration, you know, mm -hmm. as actually putting me on staff as a writer, uh, because it was just, I wanted to mold and they trusted me. You know, I, I'm not doing something that's going to be bad. You know, I'm doing yeah. something that's going to, you know, raise the bar, I think, and making the material even better. Mm -hmm. And so that's that I kind of did that on that show for quite a while, collaborated with the writers mm -hmm. um, because I was so into it because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't slick and this Forrester creation, you know, uh, fashion 
uh, housing, you know, this company they had, right? Um, it was, it was a nautical seaman. That's right. Uh, this guy that was, had a different edge to him. So I was really had a lot of, uh, input on the writing. Mm-hmm. Well, who named the shady Marlin? <laughs> that was, that was the show. Maybe that wasn't, I'm, I don't know who did that. You'd have to check in with Brad. And throughout this, was Ken getting any royalties? Did you give him an attaboy? Did you get properly thanked? I would always just check in with him while we're working out. We worked out in his garage. I lived near him. So he just came up with ideas for me. Oh, yeah, buddy. We got to get a lampshade. We've got to get at this. You got to eat an apple when you're coming in. Yeah, it's just all kinds of things Ken put in there. Mm-hmm. That is really a hoot. Well, on that show, you uh, had a father who was also kind of a daytime royalty sort, and that is Joseph Mascolo. Tell us about working with Joe. Yeah, Joe was a theater guy. He was a big guy, big char- big guy. What I mean, a big personality, yeah. a big character. Uh, I loved it because you know I like that kind of theatrics, right? I, I love a, I love actors that use their voice as an instrument. Joe had a great voice. Um, Leslie Ann Down was very theatrical. Wow, what a great actress! You know, I think we really had uh, real actors there. You know, that were. Uh, from the, the theater, right? Had great history. And I always, um, I always look at that as an instrument, you know, the, the voice of an actor and how they use it and how they understand and speak the same language. So our scenes were, were good. I felt the family was a very different kind of family. Mm-hmm. Joe and Leslie together as a couple was very different, right? They, they, they looked like an odd couple and yet the, the characters were strong. Very strong actors and strong characters with that family. Do you have any personal highlights or any highlights for you of your run as Nick? Like favorite storylines or things you got to do that were cool? I always say just recently doing press, coming back to the 35th anniversary of how beautiful it was marrying Brooke and how great it was to work with Kelly on the show. But, you know, one of the great parts of marrying Brooke was meeting her daughter and marrying her three times. (laughs) Bridget, Ashley Jones. So there... Their hands over the, you know, soap life, right? We can make anything believable on a soap opera. Uh, don't forget Baby Jack. <laughs> oh, and Baby Jack, yeah, of course. Wherever he is. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm curious to know something. Um, one of your co-stars on the Being uh, Bold and Beautiful during your time there was Susan Flannery, who had actually been a director and a producer on A New Day in Eden. Did you know her back then and remember her from your, your early, early soap days when you intersected at B&B? I am 100% right now in shock. I had no <laughs> clue about that. Not one I, she never mentioned it to me once. Interesting. Well, how did you react when you got the call to come back for the anniversary? Oh, it was just like the, it was just like the, the when I started. Jack, Brad, oh, hey, what's happening? He goes, hey, you want to come back for a show for the 35th anniversary? I'm like, it took on the same, we took on exactly the same pattern of the old call. I'm like, oh, wow, interesting. Yeah, Brad, what if, what if we recreate like Nick is now a shipping mogul, you know? He comes back, all of a sudden Kelly gets this note and bouquet of flowers, and all of a sudden she has a limo picking her up. She comes down to the marina, we rent this huge yacht, Nick's there waiting for her on the yacht, he brings her up, they have a montage of there and reminisce about their this, and he goes, yeah, yeah, and he goes, you know, we may not have the budget for that. (laughs) (laughs) And so, here I am taking off, you know, going, going down the road of all these stories and ideas and Brad going, yeah, we shoot on the stage now. <laughs> We're not renting yachts anymore. So 
Yeah, it was it was kind of funny how I just sort of took off again with my ideas, and we wound up shooting in the Forrester living room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was great. I really was flattered that he asked me to come back, and it was very cool to be a part of the 35th anniversary and a tribute to the character Brooke. So what stands out to you about the actual day of filming? Oh, I think just um, just the scene I had. I for for me personally, it was it brought back a ton of memories. Driving to work, CBS, walking to, through the hallway of uh, CBS, you know, literally reconnecting with the actors and the crew and so many people that are still there. Uh, you know that it was really lovely. You know to check in. Uh, it's great to just visit and only be a part of something and you know, be part of the cast and photo and a celebration. And then to also like step, step away and leave again, because I'm not on that show, but to be, it was an honor to be asked to be on the 35th anniversary. So it was really special. It was really great. Um, <clears throat> I think there's room possibly just for you guys to know, maybe for a story arc for Nick, possibly sometime to come back because I see him as a shipping mogul now, a billionaire shipping mogul. And mm -hmm. something there, if you were to revisit for a story arc, you never know. But, you know, that's that's something that, that I brought up. Um, Kelly loved the idea. Uh, Brad likes the idea, too. So there could be a story arc there for a while, but I don't know. But to just come back and, and be a part of that, I was in my dress whites, you know, for the scene I had with Kelly. And it was very cool to kind of connect with her again as an actress as well as the characters. That's so great. Um, now, it's not as though Bold and Beautiful is the first time we're going to see you on TV in a long time because you have been on a lot of Hallmark, uh, not only in movies, which we will talk about, but also you are currently uh, airing in the ninth season of the very successful show, When Calls the Heart. So tell us how that role came about. Oh, goodness. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, When Calls the Heart came because um, <clears throat> I had done a Hallmark movie in, I think, 2013. And uh, Lori Loughlin and her husband Massimo are members of Bel Air Country Club, where I play golf. And, you know, I see Lori up there, and she's like, you know, you should really, they would love to have you on the series I'm doing called When Calls the Heart. That, you know, you should just check it out because we're in the first season. It's kind of like nuts and bolts. They don't know where they're going. And so I went to this Hallmark uh, event and Brad Cravoy, who's the executive producer of, of When Calls the Heart, all of a sudden I'm doing like the, the, the press row where you walk down and he goes, I hear this, oh my God, Jack Wagner. <laughs> and I'm like, who is this guy? And I'm like, oh my God, I will send a, a Learjet for you to come up and do the last two episodes of season one of When Calls the Heart. He was this big personality. Lori was there. And I'm like, Lori, who is this guy? So he starts pitching this idea and da-da-da-da-da. And he goes, seriously, I'm really serious. So I call Lori the next day and she goes, you wish, yeah, he's really serious. So that's how it happened. <laughs> Just that relationship started. I wound up doing the last two episodes of the season. Bill Abbott, who was the CEO at the time, Brad said, you've got to have Bill Abbott out to play golf at Bel Air. You've got to have the AT&T guy who's on the, on the cusp of like, you know, signing, uh, taking on Hallmark and signing a deal with Hallmark that AT&T would, you know, be, you know, helping Hallmark. And that's what I did. I had him out to Bel Air to play golf. And it was literally, a, they said, hey, you want to do the first two episodes of season two? And I said, sure. And at, and, and at dinner, 
up in Vancouver. Bill is there, Michelle Vickery. We're in the middle of doing, you know, for the cast of season, the beginning of season two. And Bill Abbott, who's the CEO of Hallmark, goes, hey, you want to do the whole season? Just like Brad Bell for one <laughs> for Bold and the Beautiful. Hey, you, you want to be on the show? And so that's through that relationship I signed for season two. And the show really started to, you know, garner an audience. Right, girls? And that's yeah. kind of how this snowballed through social media, Twitter, and, uh, you know, I guess Lori Laughlin and myself were the two names on the show, right? Uh, no one knew who Aaron Krako, who was our lead actress, and Daniel Lissing were, really, name value. And so we started to, like, formulate this foursome, you know, and then they built this show and started to create this. They changed it to From Coal Valley to Hope Valley. And they started to really write comedy and romance and danger in this message of hope and heart and love. And, um, you know, people have sense. I mean, you guys know the difference between daytime and nighttime. Getting 30 to 35 years in daytime is amazing. But to get nine seasons on a nighttime series is, right. I mean, there's a handful friends and NCIS and you know there's a handful of series that get there and we're in it right now and the ratings so far are up from season eight which is pretty incredible uh that speaks very highly to getting a season 10 so uh, yeah. thanks for bringing it up but that's how that relationship happened and how my journey on the show started uh wasn't that's it you know has, has it been gratifying for you to watch it find its audience and blossom? It really has. Yeah, because I got to tell you, the cast and the writing, and we've gone through three major head writers, you know, uh, but the cast has really adjusted to some serious changes and obstacles, losing our lead actor, losing Lori Laughlin, losing head writers, you know, but this speaks to, I think, the strength of us live tweeting with the audience, them investing and really falling in love with the characters and having this town very much like um, Little House in the Prairies, the Waltons, you know, this safe bubble of a town that has romance, that has comedy, you know, that, that really deals with the obstacles of the period. Right. This is a period piece, turn of the century that brings on, you know, the phone, the automobile, the, the, the rail the railroad, right? The oil company. And it, we don't deal with it, guys, like raw and real, like a Netflix series. There's not blood and guts and sex. We deal with it like in a family friendly. This is a family friendly show. And I think very much so like the General Hospital days and romance of Frisco and Felicia, there's a compartmentalized place that I think people want to feel safe. Mm -hmm. You know, they want to have a safe place in their living room where they can take an hour and go, God, I want to watch this really uh, lovely show that makes me feel good. You know, this show makes me feel good. And that's why I think it's had its longevity. And I think the audience called hashtag Hardies tweet with us and they really are invested in the show and they've taken it to heart and they really love having this safe place that they can call their own. Like, it's, this is their show. And that's what I think it, uh, speaks to the success of it, truly. I have said that one of the reasons that I love it so much is that it's that it's just, A, I like watching the turn of the century elements to it. I love the dynamics between the whole cast. And it's just a very, 
a safe place. Like you just want to go and it's just a nice story. It's fun. And even though there's like obviously some sad stuff that happens for the most part, there's a happy ending. Um, but your character, Bill, has taken a very interesting journey from season one to now. So how have you felt about his evolution and about the pivotal role he plays in Hope Valley? Loved it. Beyond grateful for the fact that he came on as a forensic inspector as a Mountie. He then sort of transitioned into the sheriff, right? So here I am, a guy with a gun. Huge. Love that, right? But, you know, I came on as a very rigid black and white character uh, who was, it was about rules and regulations. And it's really been, for me, this journey of humanizing this character, you know, showing the underbelly, working with children, you know, having a few scenes with Elizabeth, our lead character, that were super emotional scenes when Lori was on the show. But really then from Carrick, from, from Sheriff and the comedy you play when the new Mountie comes in of like, well, whose office is this? I think it's the Mountie's office. And I'm like, well, I think it's the Sheriff's office. You know, this is funny stuff, you know, that on set, I work with the head writer as well as the other actor, now Kevin McGarry, it used to be Daniel Lessing, of how we look at the bad guys that come into these stories and deal with them. And also the comedy of like, well, you know, I'm Sheriff. Well, I'm the Mountie. So, you know, and who's, who's, <laughs> who gets the office? And right now, I'm the judge. I've transitioned to judge. And so we have a new mayor. So the episode that just aired is like, well, you're going to have to leave because this is the mayor's <laughs> office. And I'm like, wait a minute. It's the judge's office. It's like, no, it's the mayor's office. So, you know, it's always about raising the bar for me in terms of comedy. Because, you know, people love to laugh. And this is funny stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think this year... I have really loved to answer your question, being able to play so many different things that are about danger and, and true obstacles you face on the frontier, right? Guys, guns, bad guys, manipulation. And I'm kind of the patriarch of the town who, who can, commands law and order, who defends the people of Hope Valley, right? But I also do it when they, when they go, but Bill, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I go, well, well, wait a minute. Yeah. So there's the comedy when Bill is caught off guard that he's humanized, you know, from all of this, you know, rules, regulation and that to, to where you really see the underbelly of this character where, where he's really caught off guard, and vulnerable. The vulnerability of the character is what really gives it, I think, its depth. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering who you would uh, turn to in a crisis more easily, Bill or Frisco? Oof. Well, these are generational characters. You know, Frisco back at the time, part of, the, part of what made him so, I believe, interesting and really lovable was that he was fearless. You know, this was a fearless character, right? He launched into every WSB and danger in this. And Felicia was there as a very, I would call, old-fashioned couple. She was always, she was there as a woman who is devoted to her man, right? She wasn't necessarily a career woman that much. She was devoted to her, her, her man, Frisco. And it was about the danger that they faced and how she was able to manage her emotion. And that's what this deep love affair was between them. I'm so scared for you. It's okay, I'm here. And then we could also have comedy around that. You know, Bill, on the other hand, is a, is a guy who is truly the you know, the gun of the town. Like, he carries a gun. Like, he's the Judge Roy Bean of Hope Valley, a judge who carries a gun that's there to defend the people and the honor of this town. 
Um, and, you know, that's very similar, but he's also fearless. But he has to do it in a way where, you know, you're dealing with the obstacles of the generation, right? We, you know, there were bad guys that came to town that drank, played cards, and shot people. Now, we don't play that right in, in our show and One Calls the Heart, but that's really what, for me as a character, that's what I have to go into this as. So when I deal with men that come to town, bad guys that come to town, wanting to manipulate or, you know, tra make transactions in, in the town, I do it as though, as an actor, like I'm willing to take my gun out and shoot you. Like, but that's what my real underlying objective is. That's what his stance is at all times. And you'll see that in this season. Mm -hmm. Like it really has, like, that's what I do as an actor. Like at any moment, I am willing to take my gun out and put it in, and you'll have to make a decision. Because mm -hmm. that's really how it was back then, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's my answer. <laughs> well, Bill recently lost the mayoral election, but it seems there are big changes happening in Hope Valley as the world as a whole is changing. So what can you tease about the rest of season nine? Well, it's interesting, the mayoral thing, uh, Hickam, who got the mayor, what's going to happen is Bill surrenders, you know, the office is going to be a deal. We have uh, Wyman Walden who comes to town. Uh, Elizabeth just wrote a book, right? Mm -hmm. She's chosen her man with Lucas. We have Nathan, who's the Mountie, who is sort of lost because he was hit by a car because automobiles are coming to Hope Valley. We have the whole transition into contemporary automobiles. Do we have a stop sign? Do we not? We have traffic jams. We have a Mountie who has PTSD from having a horse accident. We have a new character. We have uh, uh, the, the, the female doctor in town and the new you know, woman May Sue, who are both attracted to the Mountie, that's going to be a love triangle. You know, we have a soda fountain. You know, <laughs> we've got, you know, is Bill going to, you know, he has to mentor the mayor because the mayor, Hickam, really doesn't know what he's doing. So he comes <laughs> to me. So the comedy is me mentoring Hickam on, this is how you be mayor. You got it. And I walk him through town and we wave to people. And it's really funny stuff. You know, but ultimately, at the core of it, all of these storylines are really about the heart of the characters and really about the hope of the town, you know, and the community. And I think that's what the audience really loves is that it is always a bonding of the community that really keeps the cohesiveness of the audience in this show. And, and that's really where I think it all kind of comes together and why it's so successful. Mm -hmm. Agree. And why hashtag Hardee's will be trending for, for many years to come, we hope. Yeah. Um, so this series is not your only Hallmark Association. You've had uh, the Wedding March series with Josie Bissett. So did you think that you would have this many of those? And what has it been like for you to create like such a successful franchise? That's so nice of you to bring up that it was just, just been such an amazing journey when I look back of, you know, Brad Cravoy, who was the exec producer of this, when, you know, Bill offered me, Bill Abbott said, hey, you want to do season two? Brad said, I got a book for you. I, I, I'll, I'll give you X amount of dollars to be executive producer and star in it, but you got to sell it to them. And so it was a book about, you know, this character who was divorced and this and manipulated his ex-wife and I go god this is this isn't a hallmark brand at all so i came up with the idea that hey there's a couple he's a songwriter they're a couple in college he gets a record deal you know and um 
they split up and all of a sudden 25 years later you know he's had this huge career but now he's got this wedding lodge and we see her as a real estate agent and you know she's going to marry her real estate partner but they have this wedding lodge and she comes up to the wedding lodge with her daughter and i have a daughter and she gets to the wedding lodge and there they are and the first time i see each other he's got this thing and it's a drop the platter moment when they see each other all of a sudden all these feelings come rushing back they realize, oh my God, it's the, this, this unrequited love that's never been resolved. And when I pitched it to Bill Abbott and Michelle Vickery, they went, you're in production. And that's how, that's how <laughs> I, I was about to buy it just from that retelling <laughs> of the pitch. Yeah, and that's how Wedding March was born, that we wrote the story around that idea. And then the wedding comes up and her husband comes up and he's a real estate broker. And it turns out that Mick and Olivia are actually still in love. And at their reception, I, when they asked me to make a speech, I said, I, I can't do this. I still love you, Olivia, blah, blah, blah. He punches me in the face. The whole thing blows up. She takes off. The daughters say, hey, we want to take you out. We want to make you feel better. And she, uh, they go to this club where I'm actually performing. She gets on, up on stage and sings with me. And that's what gave us a transition into Wedding March 2. You know, these two, how are they going to reconnect? And uh, how is your romance going to unfold in the next, as it turned out, six movies? You know, it was a franchise. Yeah. So, you know, that, that was amazing for me to executive produce and co collaborate on the writing. And, you know, I'm sitting there going, who's going to play this actress? Who's going to play Olivia? So I'm on Twitter and I see, oh, my God, who's this? Who is it? Oh, Josie Bissett. Look at her. She's beautiful. So I direct message Josie Bissett. Hey, what are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And Josie's like, three days later, oh, hi, my gosh, how are you? <laughs> da, 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 da. I said, hey, listen, I'm doing a movie with Hallmark Channel. Do you want to do this together? Would you like to jump in and start it with me? Two weeks later, oh, hi, hey, how are you doing? <laughs> da, da, da. Yeah, oh, here's my number. Blah, blah, blah. Call me. I call her and text her. <laughs> Two weeks later, oh, hey, how you doing? I'm like, uh, do you want to do a movie with the Hallmark Channel with me? <laughs> so anyway, that is Joe's in a nutshell. It's, she's just <laughs> like that, right? So she winds up doing this movie, and uh, she drove up. She lives in Seattle, so she drove, and she pulls up to the hotel, and I'm there waiting for her. And her car has one of those plastic things where you put wardrobe and shoes in and, you know, those little plastic. Like storage tubs? Yeah, yeah. Her car is filled with it. <laughs> trunks. Like she brought her whole world with her. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> she's and, moving in. You know, yeah, she's moving in. That's, so anyway, we started uh, a new friendship. Because on Melrose Place, we really didn't have that many scenes together, you know? So it just became this journey of us as friends and characters and just uh, really an, an amazing thing that I've had with the Hallmark Channel to have a franchise of movies and a series to go literally nine years like this. So uh, an unbelievable blessing. Surprise, I've seen all of those too and love them. Okay. <laughs> Now, the Frisco fans would not forgive us if we didn't point out that it's been almost 10 years since you last popped into GH on the occasion of its 50th anniversary. So would you be open to maybe coming back for the 60th? Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I love General Hospital. I will always honor that show and its fans. It, you know, it gave me my my first big, big job, you know, and, and Frisco, I believe, has been such a... I don't know what, what kind of character, an iconic character on that show. I'm still called Frisco by so many people when they see me, you know. And so, yeah, I would absolutely come back. You know, it was great to come back for the 50th and uh, to create a little story arc there with 
my daughter and Christina, et cetera. So yeah, always open to that. Well, let me tell you, Frisco was just name dropped last week on air and uh, there's three grandkids he has to meet. So, you know, I'm, I'm putting it out there. I would love to see an appearance. Wow, grandkids, that there's some sort of like storyline where people are trying to kidnap them or whatever and Frisco comes in as the head of the WSB and fucking gets in the middle of all of this. I, I see it, I feel right. it. It's happening. With a guitar on his back, singing <laughs> away. <laughs> he can, well, he can also, you know, do lullabies. <laughs> yeah, lullabies, right. Well, Felicia's in the background sitting there like maybe crying and just a little kiss on the forehead. And I'm sitting there, love you too. Yeah. I'm seeing a lady of my heart lullaby coming. It's, it's, it's writing itself, guys. Yeah. This, come on. this is gold. Just, just, <laughs> stories right there. Get your pen and papers out, girls, and write this. That's right. That's amazing. All right. Well, Jack, this has been such an incredible hour to spend with you. Before we let you go, is there anything you would like to say directly to the, the, the Jack Wagner viewers who are listening? I'm sure many of whom have truly been following you, watching you, and been fans of yours since the earliest days of Frisco and have been fans ever since. First of all, I just want to thank you guys. I can't tell you what, uh, what it's like to have to do interviews with uh, people like you, beautiful women like you who know me and who can basically tap in or highlight my career and your questions. So it Thank makes you. it so easy for me to tell you the stories that maybe people want to hear that they wouldn't know, that you wouldn't know of how things came about, you know, because it's, it's a very human story, you know, just how personal it is from the people I work with. You know, and how these jobs happen and how I called Josie for this and Lori Lachlan told me this and Brad Bell. And, you know, it's just, it's like about relationships. And so I'll speak to the, to the fans. Uh, I feel like I have a personal relationship with all of the fans that have followed me. And it's a real honor to see how this has carried on for so many years uh, that I think that so many of them now are following When Calls the Heart which is what has given this show really um, the life it's had and the life that Bold and the Beautiful had and the life that Melrose Place had and General Hospital had and, you know, Wedding March, the movies, all I think has come from the fan base of General Hospital. I really do. And the generations now, like, girls, this is, this is five decades for me, okay? For, this is year for, marks 40 years that I have had the blessing of a fan base that has been so loyal. And so I want to thank you all and let you know it does not go unnoticed. I am on my knees every day in gratitude for so many things in my life. And this is one of them. So thank you very much. I could clearly talk to you all day, Jack. Um, and I know I am not alone when I say uh, I look forward to everything coming out that you will be in. I will be watching. I'm not the only one. Um, but thank you for all your time today and your great stories. And we hope to have a reason to talk to you soon. Uh, you guys have made this so lovely and so enjoyable. This hour has felt like, like two minutes uh, because of Same. you two. So, <laughs> so thank you. I look forward to maybe talking again down the road. And again, really great to meet you guys and talk with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Jack Wagner for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. You know how 
how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.